Chapter 21 of The Court by B. M. Bauer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21. Oh, I could kill you. Before sundown, they reached the timberland on Bear Top. The horses slipped on the pine needles when Al left the trail and rode up a gentle incline where the trees grew large and there was little underbrush. It was very beautiful, with the slanting sun rays painting broad yellow bars across the gloom of the forest. In a little while they reached the crest of that slope, and Lorraine, looking back, could only guess at where the trail wound on among the trees lower down. Birds called companionably from the high branches above them. A nesting grouse flew chuttering out from under a juniper bush, alighted a short distance away, and went limping and dragging one wing before them, cheeping piteously. While Lorraine was wondering if the poor thing had hurt a leg in lighting, Al clipped his head off neatly with a bullet from his six-shooter, though Lorraine had not seen him pull the gun and did not know he meant to shoot. The bird's mate whirred up and away through the trees, and Lorraine was glad that it had escaped. Al slid the gun back into his holster, leaned from his saddle, and picked up the dead grouse as unconcernedly as he would have dismounted, pulled his knife from his boot, and drew the bird neatly, flinging the crop and entrails from him. Them juniper berries taste the meat if you don't clean em out right away, he remarked casually to Lorraine, as he wiped the knife on his trousers and thrust it back into the boot scabbard before he tied the grouse to the saddle by its blue, scaly little feet. When he was ready to go on, Snake refused to budge. Tough as he was, he had at last reached the limit of his energy and ambition. Al yanked hard on the bridle reins, then rode back and struck him sharply with his quirt before Snake would rouse himself enough to move forward. He went stiffly, reluctantly, pulling back until his head was held straight out before him. Al dragged him so for a rod or two, lost patience, and returned to whip him forward again. "'What a brute you are!' Lorraine exclaimed indignantly. "'Can't you see how tired he is?' Al glanced at her from under his eyebrows. "'He's all in, but he's got to make it,' he said. "'I've been that way myself, and made it. What I can do, a horse can do. Come on, you yellow-livered bonehead!' Snake went on, urged now and then by Al's court. Every blow made Lorraine wince, and she made the wincing perfectly apparent to Al, in the hope that he would take some notice of it and give her a chance to tell him what she thought of him without opening the conversation herself. But Al did not say anything. When the time came, as even Lorraine saw that it must, when Snake refused to attempt a steep slope, Al still said nothing. He untied her ankles from the stirrups and her hands from the saddle horn, carried her in his arms to his own horse, and compelled her to mount. Then he retied her exactly as she had been tied on Snake. Skinner knows this trail, he told Lorraine. And I'm behind you with a gun. Don't forget that, Miss Spitfire. You let Skinner go to suit himself, and if he goes wrong, you pay because it'll be you reining him wrong. Get along there, Skinner. Skinner got along in a businesslike way that told why Al Woodruff had chosen to ride him on this trip. 
he seemed to be a perfectly dependable saddle horse for a bandit to own. He wound in and out among the trees and boulders, stepping carefully over fallen logs. He thrust his nose out straight and laid back his ears and pushed his way through thickets of young pines. He went circumspectly along the edge of a deep gulch, climbed over a ridge, and worked his way down the precipitous slope on the farther side, made his way around a thick clump of spruces, and stopped in a little grassy glade no bigger than a city lot, but with a spring gurgling somewhere near. Then he swung his head around and looked over his shoulder inquiringly at Al, who was coming behind, leading Snake. Lorraine looked at him also, but Al did not say anything to her or to the horse. He let them stand there and wait while he unsaddled Snake, put a drag rope on him, and led him to the best grazing. Then, coming back, he very matter-of-factly untied Lorraine and helped her off the horse. Lorraine was all prepared to fight, but she did not quite know how to struggle with a man who did not take hold of her or touch her, except to steady her in dismounting. Unconsciously, she waited for a cue, and the cue was not given. Al's mind seemed intent on making Skinner comfortable. Still, he kept an eye on Lorraine, and he did not turn his back to her. Lorraine looked over to where Snake, too exhausted to eat, stood with drooping head and all four legs braced like sticks under him. It flashed across her mind that not even her old director would order her to make a run for that horse and try to get away on him. Snake looked as if he would never move from that position until he toppled over. Al pulled the bridle off Skinner, gave him a half-affectionate slap on the rump, and watched him go off, switching his tail and nosing the ground for a likable place to roll. Al's glance went to Snake, and from him to Lorraine. "'You sure do know how to ride hell out of a horse,' he remarked. "'Now he'll be stiff and sore tomorrow, and we got quite a ride to make.' His tone of disapproval sent a guilty feeling through Lorraine, until she remembered that a slow horse might save her from this man who was all bad, except perhaps just on the surface, which was not altogether repellent. She looked around at the tiny basin set like a saucer among the pines. Already the dusk was painting deep shadows in the woods across the opening and turning the sky a darker blue. Skinner rolled over twice, got up and shook himself with a satisfied snort, and went away to feed. She might, if she were patient, run to the horse when Al's back was turned, she thought. Once in the woods, she might have some chance of eluding him, and perhaps Skinner would show as much wisdom going as he had in coming, and take her down to the sage land. But Skinner walked to the farthest edge of the meadow before he stopped, and Al Woodruff never turned his back to a foe. An owl hooted unexpectedly, and Lorraine edged closer to her captor, who was gathering dead branches one by one and throwing them toward a certain spot which he had evidently selected for a campfire. He looked at her keenly, even suspiciously, and pointed with the stick in his left hand. You might go over there by the saddle and sit down till I get a fire going, he said. Don't go wandering around aimless like a hen turkey, watching a chance to duck into the brush. There's bear in there and lion and lynx, and I'd hate to see you chawed. 
They never clean their toenails, and blood poison generally sets in where they leave a scratch. Go and sit down. Lorraine did not know how much of his talk was truth, but she went and sat down by his saddle and began braiding her hair in two tight braids like a squaw. If she did get a chance to run, she thought, she did not want her hair flying loose to catch on bushes and briars. She had once fled through a brush patch in Griffith Park with her hair flowing loose, and she had not liked the experience, though it had looked very nice on the screen. Before she had finished the braiding, Al came over to the saddle and untied his slicker roll and the grouse. Come on over to the fire, he said. I'll learn you a trick or two about camp cooking. If I'm going to keep you with me, you might just as well learn how to cook. We'll be on the trail the biggest part of our time, I expect. He took her by the arm, just as any man might have done, and led her to the fire that was beginning to crackle cheerfully. He set her down on the side where the smoke would be least likely to blow her away, and proceeded to dress the grouse, stripping off skin and feathers together. He unrolled the slicker and laid out a piece of bacon, a package of coffee, a small coffee pot, bannock, and salt. The coffee pot and the grouse he took in one hand, his left, Lorraine observed, and started toward the spring, which she could hear gurgling in the shadows among the trees. Lorraine watched him sidelong. He seemed to take it for granted now that she would stay where she was. The woods were dark, the firelight and the warmth enticing her. The sight of the supper preparations made her hungrier than she had ever been in her life before. When one has breakfasted on one cup of coffee at dawn, and has ridden all day with nothing to eat, running away from food, even though that food is in the hands of one's captor, requires courage. Lorraine was terribly tempted to stay, at least until she had eaten. But Al might not give her another chance like this. She crept on her knees to the slicker and seized one piece of bannock, crawled out of the firelight stealthily, then sprang to her feet and began running straight across the meadow toward Skinner. Twenty yards she covered when a bullet sang over her head. Lorraine ducked, stumbled, and fell headlong over a hummock, not quite sure she had not been shot. Well, maybe I could trust you to play square, Al said disgustedly, pulling her to her feet, the gun still smoking in his hands. You little fool, what do you think you'd do in these hills alone? You'd sure enough belittle me if you think you'd have a chance in a million of getting away from me. She fought him then, with a great inner relief that the situation was at last swinging around to a normal kidnapping. Still, Al Woodruff seemed unable to play his part realistically. He failed to fill her with fear and repulsion. She had to think back to remember that he had killed men in order to realize her own danger. Now, for instance, he merely forced her back to the campfire, pulled the saddle strings from his pocket, and tied her feet together, using a complicated knot, which he told her she might work on all she darn pleased for all he cared. Then he went calmly to work, cooking their supper. This was simple. He divided the grouse so that one part had the meaty breast and legs, and the other back and wings. The meaty part he larded neatly with strips of bacon, using his hunting knife, which Lorraine watched fascinatedly, 
wondering if it had ever taken the life of a man. He skewered the meat on a green forked stick and gave it to her to broil for herself over the hottest coals on the fire while he made the coffee and prepared his own portion of the grouse. Lorraine was hungry. She broiled the grouse carefully and ate it, with the exception of one leg, which she surprised herself by offering to Al, who was picking the bones of his own share down to the last shred of meat. She drank a cup of coffee, black, and returned the cup to the killer, who unconcernedly drank from it without any previous rinsing. She ate bannock with her meat and secretly thought what an adventure it would be, if only it were not real, if only she were not threatened with a forced marriage to this man. The primitive camp appealed to her. She, who had prided herself upon being an outdoor girl, saw how she had always played at being primitive. This was real. She would have loved it if only the man opposite were lone, or swan, or someone else whom she knew and trusted. She watched the firelight dancing on Al's somber face, softening its hardness, making it almost wistful when he gazed thoughtfully into the coals. She thrilled when she saw how watchful he was, how he lifted his head and listened to every little night sound. She was afraid of him, as she feared the lightning. She feared his pitiless attitude toward human life. She would find some way to outwit him when it came to the point of marrying him, she thought. She would escape him if she could, without too great a risk of being shot. She felt absolutely certain that he would shoot her with as little compunction as he would marry her by force, and it seemed to Lorraine that he would not greatly care which he did. I guess you're tired, Al said suddenly, rousing himself from deep study and looking at her imperturbably. I'll fix you so you can sleep, but that's about all you can do. He went over to his saddle, took the blanket and unfolded it until Lorraine saw that it was a full-size bed blanket of heavy gray wool. The man's ingenuity seemed endless. Without seeming to have any extra luggage, he had nevertheless carried a very efficient camp outfit with him. He took his hunting knife, went to the spruce grove, and cut many small green branches, returning with all he could hold in his arms. She watched him lay them tips up for a mattress, and was secretly glad that she knew this much at least of camp comfort. He spread the blanket over them, and then, without a word, came over to her and untied her feet. "'Go and lay down on the blanket,' he commanded. "'I'll do nothing of the kind,' Lorraine said her mouth stubbornly. "'Well, then I'll have to lay you down,' said Al, lifting her to her feet. "'If you get balky, I'm liable to get rough.' Lorraine drew away from him as far as she could and looked at him for a full minute. Al stared back into her eyes. "'Oh, I could kill you,' cried Lorraine for the second time that day, and threw herself down on the bed, sobbing like an angry child. Al said nothing. The man's capacity for keeping still was amazing. He knelt beside her, folded the blanket over her from the two sides, and tied the corners around her neck snugly, but not at the back. In the same way he tied her ankles. Lorraine found herself in a sleeping bag from which she had small hope of extracting herself. He took his coat, folded it compactly, 
and pushed it under her head for a pillow. Then he brought her own saddle blanket and spread it over her for extra warmth. Now stop your bawling and go to sleep, he advised her calmly. You ain't hurt, and you ain't gonna be as long as you gentle down and behave yourself. She saw him draw the slicker over his shoulders and move back where the shadows were deep and she could not see him. She heard some animal squall in the woods behind them. She looked up at the stars, millions of them, and brighter than she had ever seen them before. Insensibly, she quieted, watching the stars, listening to the night noises, catching now and then a whiff of smoke from Al Woodruff's cigarette. Before she knew that she was sleepy, she slept. End of chapter 21 Recording by Tom Penn